All right. You guys got your Bibles? Guess what book we're turning to? Ecclesiastes. Go to the middle and then plop it open. If you find Psalms or Proverbs, head to the right. It's a little tiny book just to the right of Proverbs. We'll be back over here later. So, uh, Greek mythology, we've been hearing all these different characters, right? Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to be talking about two characters uh, known as Orpheus and Eurydice. Uh, this is the picture of them. Uh, this is Orpheus uh, mourning over the loss of Eurydice. Uh, what happened was, is Orpheus was given uh, uh, the gift of from Apollo of a lyre, a harp, and the ability to use it in a way that he was considered the best poet and musician that ever lived. And, and when he would sing and, and, and his songs that he would sing, he would in, just enrapture people. And he fell in love with Eurydice. Eurydice was a woman of beauty and grace. And the two of them together were a perfect love story. Uh, but Eurydice was bitten by a snake and died immediately. Uh, and so obviously in Greek mythology, when you die, there's only one place to go. Um, and then she was down in Hades. And so Eurydice was, or uh, Orpheus was so love struck and also struck with grief uh, that he began to sing these songs of his grief. Uh, songs that as people heard them, they just were torn by the grief that he would sing of. And they were moved by these songs of Orpheus's grief for the loss of his love. And Orpheus was so moved that he was determined uh, to go and get Eurydice back. And so he uh, ventured down into Hades and through the use of his lyre and his song was able to tame the beast, the Seberus, the three-headed hound who guards the entrance to Hades. He was able to calm the beast and get past him. He was able to charm the uh, Sharon who would carry him across the river Styx. And he made it to the, the foot of the throne of Hades and his uh, queen Persephone. And there he began to play a song describing the grief that he felt ever since he has lost Eurydice, the love of his life. And it says that everyone was moved by his song. And it says that even Hades himself was so moved that Hades shed a single pitch black tear uh, at the grief that he uh, felt over Eurydice, or Orpheus sharing the loss of Eurydice. Uh, it says that all of hell stood still as he sang his song from the grief. Even Sis uh, Sisyphus stopped pushing his boulder up the hill to listen to his song. All of hell stood still. And so as he sang this song and all of hell was moved, Hades had agreed. He had never seen such love and was so moved that he agreed to allow him to take Eurydice back with him to, uh, out of the underworld. And he said on one condition, he goes, you need to head back out of here. He says, but you're not allowed to turn around or look back. And so he agreed and began his journey back towards the light out of Hades. And on his way, he started to doubt and wonder if maybe Hades was tricking him. He couldn't hear the footsteps of his love behind him. And as he had made it almost to the light, he looked back and Eurydice was there, but she had not made it out of Hades. And so she was not fully formed yet, which is why he had not heard her steps. And she tumbled back down into Hades and they were separated again. And so they're a tragic love story. Later, uh, one of the legends has it. The funny thing about Greek mythology is there's usually kind of a couple tangents depending on who tells the story, but one of them says that uh, eventually as uh, Orpheus had himself died, he was once rejoined with uh, Eurydice and they would walk along the banks of the river Styx together and so their love was united once again. 
Um, but I tell this story because there's a, a parallel and a picture here of Orpheus that I wanna kind of dive into as we look at scripture tonight. Uh, and so if you're in Ecclesiastes, let's take a look at something here. So go to chapter three, if you're not already there, and take a look at chapter three, verse one. This is a very familiar section of scripture. Uh, you might have heard uh, songs about it uh, that you've probably sang and didn't realize maybe even that it was in scripture, but it goes like this. For everything there is a season, turn, turn, turn. No, that's not in the scripture, that's in the song. Uh, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather together stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. For everything under heaven there's a season I feel like what I love about that section of scripture is in eight verses, it feels like Solomon in his vast wisdom encapsulates the plight of our life. Every emotion, every experience that we go through, and he's, re and he's recognized in this, and, and the translation is a little bit weak for us. We just see time and time, but what it's encapsulating here is that God has appointed certain times, the time that you're gonna die, the time that you're born, those are appointed by God, and then there are times and seasons where things happen that sometimes are outside of God's appointment, but God allows them to happen. And that life sometimes happens and sometimes God appoints things to happen and life just moves on and we experience all these emotions and the scope of human experience, it really just sums up what life is and that all of it, God is aware of. It's not that he's controlling and micromanaging like a puppet pulling the strings, but nothing is outside of God. God is aware of the full scope of humanity. And though there may be a time where you hurt, there's, a, there's gonna be a season of healing. And while you might love at one time, there'll be a season where you'll experience hate. And there are times for, of war, but there are also times of peace. And there's a, in a sense, if you, if you look at it this way, there's, a, there's an inkling of hope in that everything has a season. When we talk about seasons uh, where I work, we often say like, you know, when you kind of got to buckle down and push in for, you know, a season where like maybe somebody's, you know, on vacation or something, everybody else has got to chip in and we call it a season where we're all going to help out because it has a beginning and an end. And then we always say, if it doesn't have an ending, it's not a season, it's just life. Uh, and so when you're in a season of something, you can see like the seasons here, fall begins and fall ends, winter begins and winter ends, spring begins and spring ends. Summer begins and summer ends. And life is like that. So when you're in a season where you're like, why am I experiencing this hate? Why do I wanna punch this guy in the face, right? That that season should have an end. That life isn't meant to stay in one of those, that you're gonna experience the full scope of life and God is aware of all of it. And we can find hope in knowing that everything is a season and God is in it. And so, Let's hold that as a thought as we continue into what Solomon is making this point for. So as we continue down, he says this. What gain has the worker from his toil? So if this is life, if this is what it is, if everything has a season, it comes and goes, God's aware of it all. What gain does a worker have from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. 
also he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Also he has put eternity into man's heart. So as Adam Campbell was saying, there's you know, two days, when the day you're born and the day you find out why you were born. Um, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. Why were you born? Why are you here? What is your purpose on this earth? Because that, when we get down to the heart of that, will lead us to the most important decision we'll make. And so as we get into this and, and we seek out this question of why, it's probably the biggest question that, that, that most people have because it's in the unknown that we find this unrest, this unsettlement, and then it causes us to ask that very question, why, why, why? I love the story I tell all the time. My, one of my, my boys you know, wanted to go, uh, it was Kale, my oldest son. Some of you might have seen Kale running around this week. Um, and he asked this question. We were in the house one day, and he goes, hey, Dad, let's go out and play. And I look out the window, and it's just pouring down rain. And I, he has no clue it's raining. He's a little kid, and he's like, let's go play. He just wanted to go outside, and I was like, we can't. And he goes, why? And I was like, well, because it's raining. And he goes, why? And I was like, what do you mean, why is it raining? It's raining. It's just raining, you know? But I was being silly, you know, this is the way we kind of interact with each other. And I go, well, because, you know, the, the water's falling from the clouds. That was my silly answer to him. He goes, why? And I was like, oh, okay, all right. Uh, well, you see, the water vapor is built up in the clouds and it's gotten too heavy and gravity took over. And so the water's falling out of the clouds. And he goes, why? And I was like, oh, shoot. Um, well, you see, you know, as the sun heats up the earth, uh, the water vaporizes. And then, that, you know, as it, as it becomes water vapor, it goes, it's lighter than the air and it goes up into the sky and then it forms these clouds. Why? I was like, oh, man. Uh, why is it? Oh, because you see, well, the sun is a massive incandescent gas. It's a gigantic nuclear furnace where hydrogen's converted into helium at temperatures of millions of degrees. And he goes, why? And I was like, well, uh, well, because that's the way God made it. And he goes, well, why? And I was like, uh, because he's God? Why? Oh, shoot. Um, because he's God. Why? I don't know. He's just God. You know, you can't. And that was the moment when I realized when you search out things, you can ask why and why and why and why, and ultimately you're gonna to get to the same answer, because of God. And when you ask the question, why God? Why did God? It's like, because he's God. And we have to get to that point where that is the answer. The big answer to why has to be God. That is the end of all the things, and that is what Solomon was teaching us. The end of it all, you're gonna go through seasons of love and hate, war and peace. People are gonna be born and people are gonna die and you're gonna cry and you're gonna laugh and you're gonna dance and you're gonna miss people who die. Why? Because God. Because if you don't have that answer, I don't, I don't have a better answer for you. Without God, it's all pointless. It's meaningless, meaningless, utter meaningless. Everything is meaningless without God. And I think that's what Solomon was trying to teach us. I think Solomon saw it all. And I don't envy him to have gone through all that he went through to have to get to that point because there's a shortcut. We don't have to do all that Solomon did to find that same answer. 
we have a benefit that he doesn't. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. As we continue in, um, obviously there is a verse that we are all familiar with, um, and it is simply this. It is John 3.16. And I want to give you John 3.16 and 17. It says this, simply, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's John 3, 16 and 17. As John is trying to explain who Jesus is, he begins in verse one with, in the beginning was the word, the very truth, the very essence, the very breath that spoke everything into existence. The word that gave us truth and life became flesh. And God's loved us so much that he gave his son for us and allowed him to die for us so that we might have eternal life. Because God didn't want to send Jesus into the world to condemn us, but to give us a hope of eternity. That's the good news that we're going to talk about tonight. See, on the, on the whiteboard, we, we talked about some stuff yesterday. And I want to kind of take us back to where we were. I like this side better. Um, so we talked about God, right? God, Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And then we've got time, right? And back here, God created everything, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the earth. He put a tree in a garden. He put a dude in dudette. You remember all this? And he gave them how many rules? One. one. Come on, guys. One rule. How easy is that? One rule, and they couldn't obey it. And sin brought death. And that's our problem. And that was something that God wasn't okay with. You see, I told you about this, but in the garden there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and also the tree of life. And I don't know how the story goes because we don't know either, but I always wondered this question. How come they chose this tree and not the other one? Why did they go after the one God said don't touch instead of the one that offered eternal life? You see, I think that's what God wanted for us. He wanted a relationship with us. And I think God has a plan to restore that relationship that we had here, where we had fellowship and we had access to eternal life through God. And so sin and death became the problem. Through Abraham, the Israelite nation was born. They became slaves in Egypt. These are pyramids, in case you can't tell. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, you know, where they... Prince of Egypt, Moses, that whole thing. Um, and they were freed from, sin, from slavery because they cried out to God and God heard them. He sent plagues. This is one of my favorite parts of the story. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but God sent plagues to demonstrate who he was. And I think the parallel and the tie back to Ecclesiastes is pretty interesting. If you look at the uh, Egyptian people, they worshiped everything. They were polytheistic. They believed there was a sun god, Ra, and a river god. And they, very similar to the Greek mythology, they had all these gods. And that's what they put their hope and their trust in is that they could please this god and the river would flow. And they would please this god and the crops would grow. They pleased this god and the sun would shine. And they always having to please the gods. Don't upset them because then something bad will happen. And they had this constant fear and trying to please and appease these gods. And, and, as God said, I want you to let my people go, and Pharaoh said, no, God went and demonstrated. He goes, oh, you think you have a river, God? I'm actually God, and your whole river turns red. 
They actually had a God of the frogs. He was like, oh, you think you have a God of the frogs? And then he just sends a plague of frogs. He goes, I control the frogs, not your fake God. He sent the flies, the locusts, all of them were a way of him saying, you think you have a God of all those things? You think you have a God that makes your crops grow? He sends locusts and destroys their crops. He goes, I control your crops. He goes, oh, you think there's a sun God? I control the sun. Blots out the sun. And the coolest part of that story, if you've ever read it, he only blots it out over Egypt, where the Egyptians were. He doesn't even make it dark where the Israelites were. And the Egyptians are looking over going, they got light and we don't. And they're in darkness in Egypt, looking over going, how come they get the sun? And God's going, because I'm the sun God. And he does all of this. And then ultimately, Pharaoh still in his stubbornness says no. And then God goes, I'm also the God of life and death. And then he gives a command to his people. I want you to take a perfect lamb and I want you to kill it. And I want you to put the blood of it over your doorsteps. And when you do, death will pass over and you will be freed from death because you've cried out to me and I've delivered and I've displayed who I am in power. And if you put your faith and your trust in me, death will not come to you. And that night in the morning, there was wailing in the Egyptian nation because only the children of the, of the Israelites were spared, the firstborn, and death came upon the Egyptians. And at that point, Pharaoh cracked and he said, get out of here. And they were freed from Egypt when God displayed his power. There's only one sun God. There's only one river God. There's only one God who controls life and death. And that is the God. And he demonstrated that. So then he frees them. And so now we have this pattern that if you cry out to God, this God who's all powerful through the blood of a lamb, a perfect lamb that is slain, you can have death pass over you. And this is the pattern that we see as we fast forward years later and the entire history of time is split between Old Testament and New Testament. And while we see the Father in heaven, we see the Son who comes to earth. And he lives on earth as a man for 30 years. And then he spends three years teaching. And then after spending three years teaching, this is how you should live. This is the truth. He then goes to a cross. And then he dies on that cross and spends three days in the ground and raises again. Because not only can he die for us because he's the perfect lamb, but he also has the power over life and death and he raised himself back up again. And this is the God that we put our trust in. The name of Jesus Christ because he's the only perfect lamb that can take away the sins of the earth. And this is the story that the Bible has been trying to teach since the very beginning. That I am on the only God. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu and Adonai Echad. There is one God. That's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That one God sent his son to earth, fully God, fully man, to die for us as the perfect sacrifice with the power over life and death. And so this problem of sin and death was taken care of because through our disobedience, sin enters the world. Through his obedience, death was destroyed. The penalty of sin was paid. And so we can have forgiveness because our sin can now be paid for because there was someone who was perfect who paid the penalty. But then he also has the power to give us life. So death is no longer our problem 
and life is in his hands. And so we should put our trust and hope in him. He then goes here for 40 days. Stands on a mountain with his 11 disciples. Used to be 12, but one of them was a bad guy. And he stands on this mountain. He says, now go and teach them everything I've commanded you. And one day I'm going to come back. He goes back up into heaven and promises to return. And while they're standing on the mountain looking up, the angel goes, what are you doing looking up? He told you what to do. Go tell everybody else. And we're now in this period where we're waiting for him to return. And we don't know when he's coming, but we know we have a promise that this God who has the power of life and death, who loves us, who knows the pain, the laughter and the weeping, the war and the peace, and understands it all because he lived it, he experienced it, and he took it upon himself to die for us. This God is the one who says, I'm going to come back, and you don't know when, but you need to be ready. And he's now holding off his wrath for the day that he returns. Well, he will punish sin. All the things that we hate in this world, one day it will be taken care of. Justice will be served. But until that day, he's holding back because his real hope is that one day he can restore the relationship that he had with us. That none would perish, but that all would have eternal life. And that is the heart of God. That is the heart of a God who loves every single one of you so much that he would watch his own son die on a cross, a gruesome death, to pay your sin, even though you don't deserve it, even though he didn't deserve it. That's the grace that God gives us. Now I want to take you into scripture. In the book of Luke, go to chapter 23 of Luke and follow along with me on this. This is one of my favorite sections of scripture. I love the way this plays out. It says this, in Luke chapter 23, if you turn there, starting in verse 32. I'm gonna read it, kind of play it out for you. It says this, this is Jesus, after he's been taken to the hill and put on a cross, and he's hanging there. It says this in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So where's Jesus? In the middle. So you see those pictures of three crosses on a hill? Straight from here. Jesus in the middle, a criminal on his right, a criminal on his left. And then it says this, And Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the heart of Jesus. While he's hanging on a cross after being beaten, hit with rods, flogged until his skin on his back is raw, a crown of thorns beaten into his head, and then nailed to a cross and hung there, what's on his mind? Forgiveness. Because that is why he's there. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then it says this. And they cast lots to divide his garments. That was prophesied that it would happen in the Old Testament. Another sign that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. So you got these guys standing around. Their arms kind of folded. These are the ones who've been plotting the whole time to get him killed. And they're like, yeah, he saved us. He said he saved others. Let him save himself. I mean, if he's God, right? 
This guy claims to be God. Let him save himself. And so they're mocking him and his claim to be God. And it says this, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now you got to get into the mind of a Roman soldier. You see, there's these Roman soldiers down around the bottom because yeah, they don't want anyone stopping what's happening. This has been declared by Rome what should happen. And these guards, these soldiers there, they get what a king means. They work for the king. The king is their boss. And in their mind, a king has power. A king has an army like their army. If you're a king, you have power, you have riches, you have people at your command, you speak and people, people move. So if you're a king, save yourself. Where's your army? Where's your people? Where's your power? Where's your riches? Almost like a, huh, you're no king. It's kind of what they're saying. So they're standing there mocking him. And remember what's on his mind. Forgive them. There was also an inscription over him that said, this is the king of the Jews. If you've seen the pictures of the cross, there's a little sign, might say Inri, you know, over it or have some kind of, you know, text in Latin or something. Um, what they would do in those days is, is if you, so their criminal system was a little more harsh than ours. You know? <laughs> Here, you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. There, you're proven guilty, we kill you. Um, and so what they did was this, how they uh, maintained order in their town, because a lot of times what it was, you'd have a city, and there were other cities, and people would travel between cities and trade goods and buy and sell and do those things. And so this was a message. This was right outside the city. So if you're passing along and you're heading into this city, and you walk by and you see three guys hanging on trees, and you see a sign above his head that says, don't spit on the sidewalk. Are you going to spit on the sidewalk in that town? No, you are not. Because this is what they do to people who spit on the sidewalk. You're going to make sure you do not spit on the sidewalk when you're in their city. That's what they're doing. They're basically saying, this is how we treat people who do this. And so one of them will have a sign that says robber, thief, murderer, whatever. And you go, okay, don't steal, don't kill, don't, you know. You're making a list of what not to do while you're in their city. So what they put above Jesus' head, this is the king of the Jews. Was the only charge they could come up against him was that he claimed to be the king. And that's why the soldiers are mocking him. Verse 39 says this, one of the criminals who were hanging railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Okay, now this is the worst. You got guys standing off to the side mocking him and you got soldiers mocking him. You got a guy dying on a tree next to you making fun of you. This guy, let's say he's the guy on the left, right? This guy's going, hey, if you're the Christ, save yourself. And hey, by the way, can you get me out of this too? Like that's what he's doing. Who's he thinking about? himself. That's all he's worried about. Hey, yeah, if you are the Christ, like save yourself. And by the way, if you can, you know, you know, throw in a good word for me, that'd be great. He's mocking Jesus as he's dying. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we re are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. This guy over here is looking at the other guy, like Jesus is in the middle, and these guys are arguing back and forth. This guy's like, hey, knock it off, dude. Who do you think you are? Like, look at the sign above your head. It says robber. You are a robber. Look at the sign above my head. I'm a murderer. Yeah, that's what I did. Look at the sign above his head. He's the king of the Jews. Why is this guy hanging here? He's like, do you not fear God? And so he's mocking the guy next to him. 
think this guy starts to get it. And so the guy on the right, hypothetically, says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You see, he gets it. He knows that Jesus is innocent. And he says this. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. So as we see Jesus on the cross and we read a verse like John three sixteen that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is what giving his one and only son looks like. It's really easy to brush right over that. He gave his one and only son. Yay. It's like, no, this is what it took. It wasn't cheap. It was costly. It wasn't easy. It was hard. It wasn't simple. It was love. And Jesus went to a cross and on his heart the whole time was forgive them because that's why he's there the whole time. And you got two guys, one guy who doesn't get it and another guy who it finally clicks. This man's innocent. And then he turns to Jesus and goes, Jesus, remember me. And then Jesus turns to him and says, surely today you will be with me in paradise because of your faith. And we see an echo of what Jesus has been doing the entire time he was going around teaching. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. And when you put your faith in Jesus, that's when everything changes. When you realize that God is the why behind everything, the good and the bad, the happy and the sad, the tears and the laughter, that God is in it all. And when you put your trust in him, no matter how good or bad it gets, and he becomes your why, that faith in him changes everything. And so I wanna challenge you guys to examine your heart, to think about your life, and to ask yourself this important question. Is God your why? At the end of all of it, is God the most important thing? And have you realized that you are a sinner and without him, you are hopelessly lost? Because in scripture, it says that we have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God. And we put our faith and our trust in him for the salvation of our souls that he can take away our sins because he is the perfect sacrifice. And when we believe that, that he is God, I am not, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. That simple truth, when that grips you and you realize, I don't have that. You see, that's the rest of my story. I told you guys when I was eight years old, that's what I heard. I heard that very same story. God is God, I am not, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. And I sat in the back row of a little church in Mississippi and said, I know that, but I've never done that. And I knelt down and said a simple prayer of an eight-year-old kid. It's simple, but it's big. It's not easy, or it's easy, but it's important. And I simply pray, God, I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive me. Thank you for dying on a cross for me. And I said that simple prayer of salvation. 
And it was in that moment that God's death paid for my sin and that I had life eternal instantly like that. And every person is offered that. It's why God's holding back his wrath. That's why we don't see instant justice. It's because God wants that for every single person alive on this earth. That all, that none would perish, but that all would have eternal life. For God did not come to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. And that is the good news, that we can be saved. Not because of us, but in spite of us. Because of him and his love for us. And so this is my challenge. If you examine your heart and you answer the question to say, I've never done that. I've never asked God to take away my sin. I've never confessed that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. It's so important that I don't want you to walk out of this building without having done it. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray for us. And as I pray, if that's your heart, if that's where you are, I want you to simply say a simple, innocent prayer before God that that's the, the way you see it. God, I'm a sinner. I need you. Forgive me. And that's all it takes is for a sinner to confess that they need a savior. To surrender your life and offer it to him. To die to yourself, to live for him. And so I'm gonna pray and as I pray, I'm gonna ask you if that's you to pray that prayer in your own heart to yourself. Let me pray. Father, right now if there's anyone sitting here and their heart is beating because they know what I just said is true about them, then my prayer is that your spirit would move in them right now and that they would offer themselves to you, that they would accept and receive the gift that you gave out of your love for them, to redeem them to you, to restore their relationship, to forgive their sin, to bring them into your kingdom of eternity. That will be, but for now, begins here when we start following you. And so Father, that is my prayer and I ask it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who said that prayer, for those of you who prayed and asked tonight, I'm gonna ask you in a minute if you'd be bold enough to acknowledge that by standing up and saying, I gave my life to Christ. I've never done that, and like you when you were eight, I needed it, and I did it. But remember the story of Orpheus when he was told on his way back out not to look back the reality is, is that some of us, because of seasons of life, that we may have given our life to Christ in the past, but if we were honest, we keep looking back at our old life. We keep looking back at those things we know are no good. We keep going back to those old ways, as the Bible would talk about them, like putting on dirty clothes. We know they don't fit and they're uncomfortable, but we do it anyway. We know the good we ought to do and we don't do it. We know the things that we shouldn't do and we do them anyway. And we have that <clears throat> frustration because we want to do what's right, but we're not. And if you're honest with yourself right now, you say, I'm not living the way I know I should. And you know what? I don't wanna go another minute in this. I wanna confess it, and I wanna turn from it. I wanna set my eyes forward on Jesus and keep walking. And if that's you, in a minute, I'm gonna ask you to stand too. To make that declaration to say, I'm not worried about who's sitting next to me, because the most important thing is what is going on between me and God right now. And so if you said that prayer earlier, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna count to three. So I want you to think about it. And if that's the decision that you make in your heart, I want you to just stand up. 
and say, yep, that's me. And be bold. One, two, three. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Well, thank you for your boldness. God loves you guys more than you ever know, and there's nothing that you can do that can take you from his hand. He's got you. Now, for those of you who said, yeah, Kip, you're right. I keep looking back, and I don't want to look back anymore. And if that's you, and you want to make that bold declaration tonight to go, tonight it ends. I might, I might fall again, but I, for tonight, I'm setting my sights on Jesus, and I'm going to ask God to help me walk this path. I'm going to find people in my life who hold me accountable. I'm going to live for Jesus because he died for me. And I understand the importance of that. I'm going to ask you to stand. One, two, three. Amen. Thank you. You guys, it's important. His heart is that none would perish, but that all would have eternal life. And for those of you who gave your life, those of you who prayed that prayer, you ask God to take away your sin, there's a promise in scripture that your sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. You don't have to feel shame, you don't have to feel guilt, you have freedom in Christ, you are a new creation. You are a new person in him. And from this day forward, God has you in his hands. Pursue him. For the rest of you, you know why you stood. I'm gonna challenge you to share that with someone and ask them to hold you accountable. I'm gonna ask you to be vulnerable with that, to go, I can't do this on my own. You were never asked to. That's why we're a church. There's people in your life who love you and care about you and want what's best for you and they're here for you. They might be standing right next to you or they're in the back right now looking at you. And they're so excited for you. And so I wanna challenge you guys. The band's gonna play in just a minute, uh, but let me pray and close this. You guys can have a seat again. Um, and let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for your spirit that convicts. Thank you for your spirit that gives new life. I thank you for those tonight who were bold, who said, this is more important, who get it like Solomon did. If you're not the why, then it doesn't matter. So Father, help them make you their why each and every day from this day forward. And we'll give you all the honor and all the glory and all the praise because you deserve it because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.